Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our word on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Okay, well, today we've got a great guest on, and he's uh, got a new book uh, coming out, and it's called Giving the Devil His Due. And of course, it's Dr. Michael Shermer. Thank you for being here, Michael. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. I'm socially isolated in Santa Barbara, which could be worse. (laughs) (laughs) It could be. Yeah. Oh, so um, how's everything going for you right now? I see you've got not the best time to be putting a book out either, is it? No, it's the worst possible time to have a new book. First, there's no bookstores open anywhere on the planet, although Amazon is open. Uh, And and in fact, uh, as an encouraging sign, they're hiring apparently 100,000 people. They've already hired like 80,000 or something like that. But I kind of feel bad, you know, promoting a book when, you know, people are dying and and all these frontline workers and medical personnel, you know, huge risks. Uh, I feel like I'm doing nothing other than just producing content for people to consume that is not related. It's not, you know, coronavirus. Viruses is not, you know, anything I know much about. So, you know, I feel, you know, I kind of feel guilty, actually. Mm. Well, I wouldn't. I think a lot of the people like yourself and uh, Steve Novella and things like that, they keep a lot of, uh, they keep a lot of this conspiracy and wild stories uh, calm. It it gives them a little bit of... uh, Oh, yeah, well, there is that. I mean, there's a lot of corona craziness, you know, that it's related to the 5G (laughs) internet system and Bill Gates is somehow involved, you know, like like Bill Gates needs more money and power. Right. Uh, You know, and then there's, you know, just, just... all, all the kind of crazy, whether it's a bioweapon invented by the Chinese, apparently uh, there was a paper published in Nature last week debunking that one, showing how they can tell you know, pretty close to the, the origin of, of a virus like this. It certainly seems like a bat, a, you know, bat-related in those wet markets in Wuhan. And, uh, you know, there's this cave in Texas that has 20 million bats. You know, bats are mammals. They're, you know, they live in dense colonies like, like people do. So, you know, there's a lot of logic behind why the virus would make that leap from bats to humans, much like the AIDS one did from monkeys to humans. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, I've been tracking apocalyptic narrative stories for most of my adult life since I was in college and I read, you know, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. You know, the end times are near. It's, you know, it's all going to end now. And. Pandemics were always kind of in the list, even the non-goofy stuff. Just like here are the top ten things that could wipe us out, you know, nuclear weapons and an asteroid and so on. You know, pandemics was always on the list, and I was at TED when Bill Gates gave that lecture about, you know, the pandemic is the next big thing we should be worried about. And and all of us were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They said that about nuclear weapons. They said that about this and that. You know, nothing happened. Everything's going to be fine. Well. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> what do you think the fallout's going to be? Like, you know, when this kind of hits its peak and we kind of get back uh, and society starts running again. Do you think that um, 
Do you think it'll take a while for people to really start socializing like they did? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, because the, it, no, no matter when the, the, you know, the curfew is lifted, so to speak, uh, and people go back to work and restaurants and whatnot, you know, the virus isn't going to leave. The virus isn't going to go, oh, well, President Trump said we have to leave now. Uh, you know, it's still around. And, and, and it, from what the, uh, I'm hearing from disease experts, you know, like people like Fauci, who you can trust, uh, this could just go into uh, the general circulation that cold viruses and flu viruses are, are already there that we deal with every year, every season, and we get our flu shots and whatnot. I think we're all just going to get our coronavirus shots every year because it's going to be around. Maybe it'll mutate and become less uh, dangerous, or maybe it'll mutate and become more dangerous. But in any case, it, it's not going to just disappear. I think we're just going to have to deal with this. So simple things like customs of you know shaking hands, I think that's gone. And, you know, hugging, you know, maybe not such a good thing unless it's a family member. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe we'll all adopt the, uh, the, you know, the yoga bow or the, the Japanese bow, you know, just to sort of, I, I acknowledge you as somebody I care about or I, that you're standing before me and you bow and then, then we're done. Then we're, you know, like a handshake, but not. Um, and, you know, and I just think, uh, things like, you know, how, the surfaces that you touch, you know, you, you know, just you know, cleaning products uh, sales will go up. Perhaps um, I, I think that there's going to be a huge decline in toilet paper sales in about uh, four months <laughs> when, when people quit hoarding and they're like, "Well, now what? I got six years of toilet paper in my in my uh, washroom." So, yeah. and um, yeah, so I think that I think that uh, other things that are more serious, I, I do think supply chains are going to make adjustments to what we probably should have on hand in hospitals things like extra uh, glove you know ppes gloves masks and 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 ventilators things like that i i think we were woefully unprepared for that you know for understandable reasons cuz people are worried about other things and um so that that'll change economically uh, the stock market will recover in in a matter of 6 months to a year i'm i'm quite sure um, and I've, I've developed a little trick of my own. I'm 65, so you know I, I have a stock portfolio of my 401k, you know, SEP IRA, retirement account, basically. And you know, of course, like everybody else, I only check on the good days, and, and I, you know, I sort of peek on the bad days and try not to cringe and and, and feel depressed. But my trick is I, I compare to where it was last at that level, and it turns out, you know, right now as of today, it's we're pretty much back to where we were in the fall of 2018 when everybody was delighted with the market. Okay, so and, and the fact is you don't gain or lose any money in the market until you sell your stocks. So the fact is back in fall of 2018 when you thought you had all that money, you didn't have that money because you weren't selling your stocks. I'm talking about people that just, you know, invest in long term, not day traders. Yeah. And so just kind of try to think of it like that. And that, in fact, you know, it's not going to matter uh, how much the market goes up and down as long as you don't sell your stocks. Then it'll. You know, I think that'll come back. What What's unclear is certain industries like um, uh, people that specialize in meetings or or even theaters. I was thinking about this. Why do we need to go to theaters? I haven't been to a theater in years because I have a four year old now, and you know we're locked in at home. But no problem. I you know I live you know I stream Hulu and Netflix and Amazon Video. There's just endless content. Why would I go to a theater? And now, why would I go to a theater when there's people in there coughing and hacking and teasing? You know, I, I think theaters could all be converted into, you know, like condominiums or apartment complexes or something. And the film industry will recover nicely. They'll just figure out a new way to monetize the release, the rollout of their films through live streaming or pay-per-view or, you know, whatever. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of um, new uh, structuring of old industries to adjust to this. I think college campuses, too, are another one where this can happen, because one thing I've noticed, you know, we were given a couple days to switch all our classes to some yeah. form of online teaching, and it seems like most people have been able to do it, given the technology that's available, and it just seems like, you know, college have to colleges have to spend a lot of money on classroom space. It seems like they could start moving towards hybrid models where, you know, some classes are held in person, some are online, or, or half and half. Um, but I could see that for all meetings and even jobs that people have. Like, why are you making people drive places to do a job they could do at home? 
Right, exactly. I'm a professor at Chapman University, and of course, like you and everybody else, we, you know, we just, it just shut down right before spring break, and I haven't seen the students since, and I won't, uh, I guess, until the fall. But, um, but, but, you know, I've been um, recording my lectures in a studio here in Santa Barbara. They're pretty high quality. We're making them publicly available for free for anybody to watch anytime. You can just up, go to skeptic.com. They're right there on the home page, and my students get them. I send them a little quiz. And I give them a week to watch the lecture and do the quiz, and then we're just kind of grinding along that way. Now, I probably should be doing Zoom, but although now I see Zoom as some issues, not just bandwidth issues, but also mm. Zoom bombing. You've yeah. probably heard of Zoom bombing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so maybe, you know, that's not such a good thing. And I know the Zoom company guys are trying to figure that out, how to build in more protection. So, but, but that, that'll change. And, and, and so, you know, there's so many options educationally now. It's just staggering how much content there is in so many so- different sources. You know, I mean, it's kind of what I do for a living. And, and um, uh, you know, Audible.com, the teaching company, and, you know, just endless courses. Steve Pinker just uploaded his uh, lectures at Harvard on his course, Rationality. Free. Anybody could watch them. There's all those MOOC courses that people recorded. Paul Bloom at Yale has a great course on morality. You can watch for free. You know, these are like world-class scientists and scholars at world-class universities that anybody can take their class for free. You don't have to pay the 50000 a year and live in a dorm and so on. That's not to say we'll never need brick-and-mortar buildings again for universities. I think there is a value to a seminar-style class in which you're sitting around a table talking. You know, that, but, but somebody at a blackboard yammering away for an hour – you know, maybe that's not critical that you are there in the classroom, and that may change. So I want to get into the to the new book a little bit. So you're asking us to give the devil his due, but you don't believe in the devil. So uh, so what gives? <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, it's you know it's metaphorical. The devil is whoever you disagree with that you would like to cancel out or 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 censor or make illegal and so on and so the 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 devil has to be given his due for your own safety's sake that is to say once you set up norms rules or laws censoring speech you don't like or you disagree with or that you determine to be hateful or even dangerous then what's to stop somebody down the line say well you know what Shermer, I don't like what you're saying. I think it's hateful. In fact, I think it's dangerous. I think it's an incite to, incitement to violence. Therefore, you're censored. And then I'll be standing there going, uh, oh, wait, uh, I'm not crazy about that. And there are examples that I present in the book of, of uh, in the 19th century, in the 1850s, a lot of northern abolitionists went to the south to give speeches about the horrors of slavery. And newspapers tried to get their, you know, articles, you know, newspapers distributed in the South, and preachers wanted to go there and, and preach about the evils of slavery. And Southern politicians made the argument, you know, this kind of speech could lead to slave insurrections, and that could cause violence and even deaths of slave owners. We can't have that. That no, they didn't use the word hate speech, but that's essentially what they argued. And the same thing happened in the in the South in the Civil Rights Movement in the nineteen uh, fifties and sixties, where it, it was believed that people like Martin Luther King and especially Malcolm X, that the kinds of speeches they were giving were uh, possibly incitement to violence, and therefore they should be censored. Now this all goes back to in the 20th century, it goes back to uh, the famous 1919 case of uh, Schenck versus the United States, in which um, the Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes determined, and I'll just read his judgment here. Um, this is 1919 case Schenck versus the United States. The most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. The question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. It is a question of proximity and degree. So those two clauses, the um, falsely shouting fire in the theater and clear and present danger have come down to us as the bulwark against speech we don't like. And the problem is is, is that um, it's concept creep. 
or mission creep that you know once you uh, create the category you can put more and more things into it that you just have to happen to disagree with now what was this clear and present danger in 1919 shank was the head of the socialist uh, party in philadelphia and he was distributing flyers to draft age men who the united states as it was entering the first world war uh, were being drafted you know conscription and shank argued that that's a violation of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution, which which gives you autonomy over your own body, and in a way, the government saying, well, no, no, we own your body, and we're sending you off to war where you may die, and too bad, because this is a clear and present danger, and so anyone that protests um, the uh, draft is therefore a clear and present danger to our nation, and therefore must be silenced. Whoa, to modern ears, that's, that just sounds crazy. I mean, you know, 1960s was all about protesting the draft in the Vietnam War, but that's how that began. And so there's always been this um, category that's growing in size in, in which everything gets thrown in there that somebody do, just happens to disagree with. So let me take a modern example, and, and let me see where you come down on this. So there is a lot of misinformation going around now about coronavirus, yeah. uh, with people saying it's caused by 5G or the effects are being exaggerated for political gain, perhaps by you know President Trump's uh, uh, competitors. Um, and those beliefs can lead people to not engage in best practices. So in other words, the misinformation gets out there, people will buy into it, and then they will uh, potentially create a danger for other people. So... Uh, what would be the remedy for for something like this, where you where you would potentially have um, danger? Yep, more speech, better speech, fact yeah. checking. You know, just uh, in, in fact, go ahead and make a big deal about these crazy conspiracy theories. Pub publicize about them, cover it on the news, and say here is why it's wrong, and here is the harm it's causing. That is, you know, let let a thousand flowers bloom and just see which ones are exposed by the sunlight uh, to uh, you know where they're in, in, in error, as opposed to what? Okay, so once we start to censor. Uh, say someone like Alex Jones and, and, you know, he's causing, you know, harm to people and so on. Now, okay, I don't like Alex Jones, but, you know, once you start down that road, then, then, you know, then what about uh, other sources that are maybe not the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, but, you know, they're, they're a second, second level, say, media source or third level of tertiary, whatever. Um, you know, should they be shut down? Then who's going to do that? You know, you, you know, we're gonna, is Fauci going to have a subdivision under his 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 control that says, you know, people that deviate from what the CDC says about coronavirus, they they you know, they, we're going to deplatform them or arrest them for causing harm. It, again, it's a dangerous road to go down because once that's set up in place in a legal system, you know, precedence is very strong in, in the legal system, then the next pandemic that, you know, somebody says, well, I think it's this, and, and it, particularly when we don't know much, we, we need to hear a lot of different voices and hopefully weed out the nuttier ones and a few will rise to the top. There was this doc uh, posted a YouTube video the other day uh, saying he, he thinks it's, um, it's a virus, but it's not the harm it's causing in lungs is not what the CDC and Fauci and these guys th think it is. He thinks it's more related to something like high altitude sickness and therefore, well, therefore what? I don't know. He just kind of rambled on about this and said he didn't know much about high altitude sickness, but it seemed to resemble what he was seeing in his emergency in his ER as people were coming in. Okay, interesting. I thought, all right, well, you know, this guy's a doc. I'm not a doc. What do I know? So I sent it off to uh, Harriet Hall, the skeptic who, who does our column in Skeptic on these kinds of issues. And, you know, she, she pointed out uh, several things about this that, uh, you know, I thought, yep, yeah, okay, right, that's right. All right, so he's wrong. Never mind. But, uh, again, we, we have to give those people a voice so that the, the, the other people can be heard, the people that turn out to be right. So... Now, a lot of what you're talking about is sort of, do we censor people who engage in speech we don't like? But what the government's done lately is they are trying to not do that, because that would be censorship. What they're trying to do instead is to regulate, or at least threaten to regulate, tech companies that essentially publish the speech. So, do you, do you draw a line there, too? No. Or is it a different line? 
Uh, well, there. So we have to make a distinction there between public and private. Um, you know, the First Amendment applies to the government uh, censoring speech. You know, uh, you know, a private company like Google slash YouTube uh, or any of the other tech companies, um, you know, they can do whatever they want, and I want to give them the freedom to be able to do that. What I, what I worry about is the blending of the two. When the government, if the government comes in and says, "All right, Google slash YouTube slash Alphabet, <laughs> uh, you have to start now screening." Uh, out crazy conspiracy theories, let's say, uh, and, and you know, um, Sasha Barrett Cohen gave a speech. He's given some big award at a Jewish group in England uh, when he spoke out against Holocaust denial. Okay, well, I know a lot about Holocaust denial, and, and I, I, I'm quite sure they're wrong, and maybe they're even anti-Semitic. Some of them. Okay, but. Uh, who's gonna who's gonna screen out which deniers' claims and theories and conspiracy theories? Who's supposed to do that? And what's the criteria? So the analogy I use in, in the book is: um, let, let's say um, I'm interested in how many Native Americans died since 1492 when Europeans first came. You know, the colonialization and and, and genocide and guns, germs, and steel uh, that killed out. You know, how many? Well, we don't know for sure because we're not sure how many were here to begin with. Maybe it was 90 million. Maybe it was 70. Maybe it was 50 million died. You know, it's a debatable point. At the very least. But let's say I come up and I publish a paper, and so I think it was 10 million. And furthermore, I think most of them died of, of disease, not in, intentions, not, not on the intention of the Europeans who came here. Well, am I a Holocaust denier now, and therefore my speech should be censored or I should be jailed? You know, it's good to remember in that particular case, uh, Holocaust denial is illegal in Canada and Germany, Austria, France, Australia, New Zealand. Illegal. I mean, it, you cannot give a talk at a you know hotel room or at a classroom or whatever about this. And the case I talk about in the book is David Irving. You know who I I have debated. I have written about him. I have debunked him thoroughly. He is wrong, 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 and he probably is an anti-Semite, as the judge called him in his court case against Deborah Lipstadt. I, I I'm sure of all that. Um, but I still defend him, and I did in his court case. He flew to Vienna from London to give a talk, an invited talk, just a group, uh, small group of people that were kind of interested in this fringe conspiracy theory that the Holocaust never happened the way we think it did. And he was arrested at the airport. You know, his passport was flagged, and so once they scanned it, they went, oh, it's this David Irving guy. You know, what are you doing here? I'm here to give a speech about World War II. Well, what about World War II? Well, you know, and then before you know it, he's in jail and he had a court case. And I wrote a letter to the judge saying, you know what? I don't like this guy and I know he's wrong, but, you know, jailing somebody for just thinking about giving a talk, that's a thought crime. You know, now we're in Orwell's crazy world of, you know, talk, you know these autocrats, you know, controlling people's speech and, and thought. You know, that's really dangerous. I'd rather people like David Irving be totally exposed for everybody to see why they're wrong and then just let it go from there. But should we allow these ideas to proliferate on social media? I mean, putting aside the idea that, yes, it's, you know, these are private companies and that they could allow it or disallow it if they want, but that's not the issue we've been dealing with for the last two years. You've had government sort of putting their thumb on Zuckerberg and, and, and other people saying, we want you to clean this up. And, you know, Sasha Barracone, as you mentioned his speech, I mean, he's trying to get them to essentially take all this, all sorts of things down. Um, I mean, should they be doing that? I mean, are there some things that are too much of a danger? It should be, yes, you can think it, and yes, you can say it, but no, you can't put it on a place where anyone else can see it. Uh, yeah, here's what I, I wrote about that. Um Let's see. Practically speaking, such filtering of content would require hiring armies of censors to read or review every article, essay, video, or statement of any kind. A rather formidable requirement, given that, for example, there are 1.3 billion YouTube users who upload 300 hours of video every minute, with 5 billion videos viewed each day. It would take a Napoleonic-sized army to screen them all. I mean, and then continuing, legally, Cohen's recommendations are not purely private forms of censorship. Fines should be leveled, levied, he said. Well, by whom? And he continues, maybe it's time to tell Mark Zuckerberg and the CEOs of these companies, you already allowed one foreign power to interfere in our elections. You already facilitated one genocide in uh, Myanmar. 
do it again and you go to jail. Jail? <laughs> Prison time? Uh, wow. I mean, okay. So, I mean, I get the emotion behind it, of course. You know, it's infuriating to listen to some of these crazy ideas and, and, and some people do believe them for sure. Um, like when Alex Jones rambled on about Sandy Hook as a false flag operation and some of his, you know, nutball followers went, went to some of the homes of the families, victims' families. I mean, this is terrible. But making that a crime, oh boy, you know, that, that's a very dangerous road to go down. So, uh, one thing that always bothers me with these pushes to, um, to censor social media is that a lot of the people pushing for the censorship the politicians often get lots of facts wrong or don't care about facts or are really interested in, you know, um, pushing their own conspiracy theories and just banning the other guys. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. So with the coronavirus thing, you know, you could see Trump critics saying, you know, he's using this um, uh, crisis to gain more power like Putin is and, and uh, Oban in, in Hungary and Erdogan in Turkey and, you know, so forth, China, North, North Korea. Um, and so, he, you know, that's a kind of conspiracy. This is what he's going to do. And then when he doesn't do it, uh, you know, he says, no, I'm going to let the governors decide whether they want to close down their states. You know, then he's hammered for that. So, you know, we just have to allow people to, to you know, to, to be be critical of our uh, public officials because they're, they're going to whatever they do, they're gonna, you know, people are not going to like it. Some people um, as opposed to deciding which voices we're going to allow. Um, again, that's just uh, it's such a dangerous road to go down. I mean, so like in the case of um, the, the demonetizing of videos that YouTube does, I, I know many friends like my friend Dave Rubin. Who has a show, or, or a Ben Shapiro, Dennis Prager? These are conservatives. Now, I don't agree with. Uh, well, D- Dave Rubin's more of a classical liberal, but I don't agree with all their policies. I disagree with them on, on a lot of issues. But the idea that they should be censored in some way, their videos demonetized. In the case of PragerU videos, um, a lot of them are screened out of places where you could watch them, like in libraries and schools. Well, wait a minute. Who's deciding that? Well, okay. Obviously, Google has a team or some algorithms that engineers have designed to try to flag those. But you know, again, that's a kind of censorship. Uh, you know, I mean, why not just let all the flowers flourish and, and, and bloom and see which ones rise to the top and, and 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 give give viewers, consumers of content, a little more credit for being discrimin- discriminating. Now, to be sure, there's examples where that's not such a good idea. It seems, but. Who decides that? That's the problem, as I see it. So one thing that's been bothering me lately is, you know, after 2016, there was, particularly on the on the losing side of the election, a lot of people looking for a boogeyman to blame, um, and they focused on Russia or a conspiracy with Russia. And clearly Russia did try to, um, yeah. you yeah. know, sow discord. Um, and I think immediately after the 2016 election, there were a lot of people thinking, oh, Russia tipped it in Trump's favor. But what the political scientists have been finding is, no, it's, you know, it really doesn't look that way. And right. it's sort of, t- it's right. tougher to change people's minds about who to vote for than, than we're giving them credit. Um, but uh, anyway, I saw a congressional testimony where there was, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez in, 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, questioning Mark Zuckerberg. And she said, uh, you know, your platform is pushing all these conspiracy theories and, uh, you know, misinformation. And because Russia had such a big impact on 2016, you know, and then she went on saying, you know, what are you going to do yeah. to take this stuff out? And it's just like embedded in her question was yeah. a bunch of, you know, a bunch of misinformation yeah. suggesting that there was a bigger effect there than there really is. And, and and I'm just sort of, you know, particularly when it comes to Congress people, I mean, they so they say so many things that are wrong and factually incorrect, but so many of them are want to pull the trigger on censoring social media. Yeah, exactly. I mean, new research that I, the research you, you just referenced that, that I, I'm familiar with shows that, the, you know, the Russian meddling had very little effect at all. I mean, if, if you're already inclined to believe that Hillary was running a you know, pedophile scheme out of a pizzeria, you know, you've lost your mind. You're not, you're never going to vote for her no matter what anyway, whether that's true or not, or whether somebody corrects you about that. Right. So the kinds of people that consume that crazy content, uh, were already convinced they hated Hillary. So, you know, th there's no vote swapping sides there. And uh, Hugo Mercier has a new book out called Not Born Yesterday, Cognitive Scientist Who Studies These Sorts of Things. And, uh, you know, he shows on, on so many levels that these sorts of influencers have very little effect. Advertising has very little effect on what people consume. Political advertising, he says, is pretty much worthless. All you're really trying to do is is signal to your base that you're the you're the top candidate in the party. But getting people to switch parties or switch sides because of ads that you run, you know, he shows is pretty much uh, ineffective. Totally a total waste of money. And uh, and then even more seriously, I really enjoyed this conversation I had with him and his book on the Nazis, you know, because I've always been curious how you get a group of, you know, uh, uh, like Germans in the 1920s and 30s uh, who are highly educated, highly cultured, intelligent people, you know, leaders of the uh, of the free world in Europe and and so on to become Nazis over seemingly overnight. And, and the answer seems to be they didn't. Most of them did not embrace the exterminationist ideology of the Nazis. Uh, you know, initially because of the economic success after 1933, as coming out of the Depression in, in the early, early to late, mid to late 30s. Of course, the German people liked that economically, and most of them just, um, you know, tried to ignore the, the you know, sort of crazy extremes of Nazi ideology. But I'm convinced now that, you know, no Hitler, no Holocaust, and probably no Hitler, no World War II. Most Germans did not want war. They did not want to exterminate Jews. They weren't crazy about Jews. Anti-Semitism was pretty rampant throughout Europe, you know, going back to Martin Luther and all the way into the, certainly into the 1930s. But most of them didn't think the Jews should be exterminated. That was a Hitlerian uh, policy that his underlings maintained. Now, the way that they maintained that ideology when they didn't have the majority support was through two phenomenon. One is uh, pluralistic ignorance or the spiral of silence, where everybody thinks everybody else believes something. And then a punishment of dissenters who are willing to stand up and say, you know what, the emperor has no clothes, and everybody goes, oh, I guess it's okay for me to express that. And then the whole uh, spiral of silence would fall apart if dissenters could speak out. 
But, of course, what autocrats and dictators do when they come to power is get rid of dissenters and close the press. Uh, because a free press is the one solution. Free speech and free press is the solution to that kind of problem. So once you build a KL system like the Nazis did uh, or the Gulag system like the Soviets did, then uh, you don't have to have the majority. You, you can have a, a, a small minority if you have the power to control dissenters and the press. So outside of the Internet, um, it seems like there are big battles taking place now regarding free speech on college campuses. Um, so what have you seen? I mean, you work on a college campus. Are you, yeah. are you experiencing pushback against free speech? <laughs> well, uh, two, two thoughts on that. I, I, I don't personally see it very often. Uh, and before all this happened in the last few months, you know, I used to give quite a few public talks at universities around the country, maybe a dozen or a year or so. And I would never see, you know, these riots and, and, and paroxysms of student protests and so on. Uh, but most of my talks are more science-related than, than political-related. And I, I'm not a conservative. You know, I'm not like Milo Yiannopoulos coming on campus to inflame the libtards and, <laughs> and, and get them all riled up. And I'm not like Ben Shapiro coming to talk about uh, pro-life, you know, which which gets students all riled up. So may, maybe there's a selection there. But here, here's how I think about it, that I, I think most of the time most students are just holed up in their dorms and their party and they're just doing their thing, going to class, whatever, that um, that that the few uh, eruptions that we've seen and there's you know documented dozens and dozens of them enough that um, you know Tucker Carlson used to have his weekly ep- uh, episode campus craziness segment that you know he had a- enough material once a week to fill about 12 to 15 minutes of a segment uh, of, of campus craziness. But it's not like if you walk into any college campus, now you're going to see all this craziness. You, you just don't. It's not that common. But but it's it's extreme enough that it makes the news. So there is a selection bias there. More dangerous, though, that I have seen is uh, self-censoring. That is, when I ask my students, how many of you uh, self-censor? You don't say what you're really thinking in class on some hot-button political, uh, uh, religious, economic, ideological issue, and they all raise their hand. They're all super sensitive and careful and nervous about saying something that could offend somebody because... Uh, of the consequences that we've all seen in the last, I don't know, about five, six years. So it's about 2013 or so is when this started. Um, and, and the thing that, that's behind my book that, that, that is that this used to be a liberal cause. You know, free speech, free thought, the ACLU, that's a liberal organization. You know, in the 60s, the free thought movement, UC Berkeley. This is an issue that liberals always supported. Why is it? I'm getting you know the, the the most supportive for this from from conservatives people like again Ben Shapiro, Dinesh D'Souza you know these are uh, these are the kind of people going yeah we believe in free speech like wait a minute you certainly didn't decades ago so what happened all right so I you know explore this what went wrong and you know I think it does go back to the civil rights movement and it starts with this idea that there is such a thing as hateful speech which I agree there is you know using the n word to describe an african american or the c word to describe a woman or calling jews kikes and you know japanese or nips or vietnamese or uh, vietnamese or kook gook gooks and so on you know I, I, the, 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 these are not good words don't be a dick don't use those words i agree we should get rid of those words and, but the moment you start going down that path and go, okay, we're going to have a list. We're going to make a list. We'll call them microaggressions. These are the sorts of things you shouldn't say. And it starts with the N-word, which everybody goes, yep, 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 that, that's good. We, let's put that on the list. And then we start adding words and then phrases, like where are you from? Or, wow, you're really good at math. Uh, or, or if it's Asian, of course you're good at math. You know, these kinds of stereotypes we have. That people say. Then all of a sudden, the list, like UCLA issued one, I reprint in the book from, from 2016, I think it was. You know, that was like you know, many pages long in small type of all the things you shouldn't say. And it's like, holy moly, what has gone on here? This is insane. You know, so people are walking around campus with this list in their head, like, oh boy, I better not say anything. Ugh, I wonder if I should say it this way. And and, and so people then become afraid to speak out and, and say something for, for for fear that they'll be you know, cancel, but you know, the cancel culture is, is, is pretty vibrant on, on social media. Um, and, uh, so that's a kind of punishment of dissent. It's not a legal punishment. No one's going to send you to the gulag at, 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 at the U- University of California system, but 
it, it's sort of a, a subjective, personal, psychological gulag where you are isolated and canceled, and we're not going to you know socialize with you because you hold the wrong thoughts. And, and then that continues. Like, well, what if I'm you know kind of pro life on the abortion issue i'm i'm conflicted you know how could you even consider the pro-life position you know you are canceled and, and, and so on there's just so many issues like that and then all of a sudden you know everybody is afraid to even speak so do you worry about that yourself do you think that you would face backlash just for being in favor of free speech regardless of what you use that freedom for uh, well, I will tell you here, let me look this up. Uh, what, uh, you know, I'm on a kind of a book tour, as it were, a virtual book tour. And, uh, this source, ProPublica, got a copy of the book, and my publicist contacted the editor there. And let's see, what did she say? That, uh, your, your, what, oh, what your author is proposing is asinine. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> You know, I mean, come on, this used to be a liberal cause. I'm saying free speech, free thought, let people have their voice. This is how civil rights were won, by minority oppressed people speaking up and saying, stop doing that. We don't want to tolerate that anymore. We're going to fight back, you know, and, and, and that's how moral progress happens is, you know, not from the top down, so, although sometimes you need that. We had to fight a war to end slavery, you know, uh, at some point, um, I think it was, uh, uh, was it Eisenhower or Kennedy that had to send the troops in to um, desegregate, uh, I think it was Alabama schools, you know, federal troops, you know, because the governor there said, you know, we're not going to integrate our schools, you know, seg segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. And the president said, no, uh, you are segregating, and we're sending in men with guns to make sure you do. Sometimes that's what it takes. But most of the time, it happens from the bottom up of just people speaking their minds and then changing the way we write and think and talk and speak through television scripts and uh, film screenplays, novels. You know, Richard Dawkins makes this point. You can pinpoint when a novel was published down to about the decade based on the language used to describe Jews, blacks, and women. And it's like the first time I saw that, I went, wow, that's true. That's incredible. How did that happen? And then, uh, you know, but, but, but again, no laws were passed that said you can't write a novel in which you use this word. Uh, it just happened because people changed the way they think and speak about other people in the right direction uh, without any top-down laws or anything like that, just people um, changing their way they think about other people by those people saying, I don't like it when you call me that, okay? So, again, that but that requires people feel free to speak their minds. So you, you brought up cancel culture online where somebody steps out of line and says something wrong. Sometimes they do say, you know, people will say things that are offensive, but sometimes they do it unintentionally or sometimes it's it doesn't really cross a serious line it's just interpreted that way but i i would suggest that some form of cancel culture is appropriate in moving the dialogue forward in the sense that people should be held accountable for things they say i mean at what point does that go too far mm, yeah uh that's a hard one it's hard to know where to draw the line because yes you should be free to speak your mind and criticize someone you disagree with yes ab absolutely um, I guess the problem with social media is the anonymity um, tips people into the direction of being really nasty and mean. You know, it's not that you're wrong, you're evil, you know, and I hate you. And, you know, I'm never speaking to you again and I'm, I'm going to unfollow you. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, you know, that that's where it goes too far. You know, I, I, I get, you know, my fair share of hostile emails and... Uh, I often write the person back. I mean, they're just nasty. You know, I, I don't even want to say the things that they write to me. And then I'll write them back and say, you know, you know, thanks for the letter. I, uh, are you having a hard day? I mean, this is, you know, pretty harsh. I mean, I'm just trying to do the right thing. Oh, my God, I never thought you'd write back. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I shouldn't have been so nasty. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit like driving in the car in L.A., you know, where people flip each other off. They don't they wouldn't do that on a sidewalk. 
Yeah. You know, without the anonymity of being in the car, you know, social media is a little bit like that. And, uh, you know, what's the solution to that? Well, just new norms. I mean, just come on, just social pressure to be nicer. It's hard to do sometimes. I know I get upset too on social media and say, I'll go, I'll go on a rant about guns, for example. And then, you know, I lose a bunch of followers and I get a bunch of angry emails from gun owners. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm not really anti gun, but I can see how you, uh, what I said sounds like that. So we all have to be careful about that. So one thing that interests me is that much of this move to censor speech often comes down to um, what the person who wants to do the censoring, you know, what groups they see as part of their own coalition and what groups they see as part of the opposing coalition. So they're always happy to ban speech coming from the other side, um, but they're happy to engage in the same sort of speech if it's accusing their own enemies. So um, you'll find, oh, well, we don't want, you know, things that could be offensive about race. Well, it's only races that happen to be part of their particular political coalition, it seems like. Where if you oh, talk totally about, if you talk about, you know, people on the other side, they're like, oh, well, we can say whatever we want about them, and that's not a problem. So it's not, it's not that they're out to stamp out racism or hate speech writ large, it's that they're out to stamp out anything that the other side says about their own side. Absolutely, yes. I mean, the political coalition seems to be even stronger than the sensitivity to race issues because people like um, Larry Elder, who is a black conservative, or Thomas Sowell, um, Candace Owens now, very provocative um, black uh, African-American uh, scholar, uh, you know, they, uh, Condoleezza Rice, uh, Ian Hersey Alley. Uh, you know, they've all been canceled and hammered and criticized and, and, uh, and so on uh, uh, by liberals because they're not towing the proper line. I'm, in the, ca- the case I write about Ian Hersey Allen in, in the book because, uh, first of all, there's a back, kind of a backfire effect there where she was supposed to give the uh, commencement speech at Columbia University and, you know, get an honorary doctorate and the whole thing. And then, you know, the campus went crazy because, because why? I mean, here you have Ian Hersey Allen. So she's a black woman who is a champion of women's rights and civil liberties. Well, she's critical of Islam because that was the religion she was born and raised in and was the victim of uh, female genital mutilation and a forced marriage that she escaped from and you know moved to Amsterdam, le- learned a new language, became a member of parliament there, moved to America, and, and, and so on. You would think that liberals should hold her up as... You know, this is like the next great champion of women's rights. No, oh no, no, no. She got canceled and, uh, you know, hammered. And then, to their credit, the Wall Street Journal published her commencement speech. (laughs) So this is what I call the the other backfire effect. That is, um, you know, instead of a couple hundred college students on campus who are half of them aren't even listening to the graduation speech, uh, instead, you get two and a half million people, the readership of Wall Street Journal, read what she was going to say. So, ha! <laughs> but, you know, that, you know, th- this whole intersectionality theory is, is the problem that you have these intersecting, um, coalitions or preferences. So, you know, if I'm a white male, so, you know, white, straight, middle-aged male, so I'm about as bad as it comes. You know, but if you're, say, a, um, bisexual, African American, uh, Islamic, whatever. Just add two or three more. You know, you, you've got all the the boxes checked. You know, this is really a bad path to go down. There, wh- what what is the end game here? Where, where can this possibly lead to Martin Luther King's dream of not judging people by the color of their skin or all these other boxes, but instead by the content or the character? You know, that, that's the opposite of what we should be doing. So we have to get off that track. It's just, there's no good end to that. So how about, uh, I want to bring up one form of speech that I've seen uh, that's been highlighted by the coronavirus, and that is anti-vax speech and maybe other claims about things like, uh, uh, chiropractors being able to cure your, your COVID-19. Um, by getting a spine adjustment or healing crystals and all sorts of nonsense out there that doesn't really work and has, is advertised, uh, from time to time as actually doing something, uh, right now that it can't possibly do. 
I mean, is there a state interest in stepping in and saying, no, you can't, you know, you can't say those things. We're not going to wait for better speech to rise to the top. You cannot sell, you know, crystals as a, <laughs> as a, uh, a way to, to, to cure Corona. Yeah, that's certainly a hard one because there, if somebody is fraudulently doing something that causes harm, um, then, then the state does have an interest in that. We, would, we do have regulatory laws about uh, food and drug, for food and drugs, for example, and and for good reason. I, I support that. But you know, chiropractic is that the same thing? What about acupuncture? You know, crystals is is moving even further away from that. You know, it's not doing anything. Okay, so I guess the concern would be if by doing these useless things like homeopathy. Um, you know, how, where's the harm? Well, I, I can see where if somebody gets coronavirus, they should be going to the ICU to go on a ventilator or take the drugs or whatever. Um, but instead, they're doing this other thing. Okay, or, or let's say take a, a more contemporary example of the hydrochloroquine, hydrochloroquine, which I actually tried for two days. Uh, my my doc, who's a good friend of mine. Uh, told me he's going on this was about a month ago maybe six weeks ago now you know he's going on it he's you know this, works at this big hospital in la you know he's really worried about getting getting it and, and you know some evidence that it might work even prophylactically so he went on it wrote me a script and i thought all right i'll, I'll try it you know and then i i could really feel the toxins it's really quite toxic and i you know i didn't like doing that prophylactically if i get it maybe i'll try again but see this hydrochloroquine this is in this gray area it, maybe it works maybe it doesn't we don't have the gold standard of the you know randomized controlled trials yet on on a large number and you know people are going crazy because so many people are dying let, 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 let's fast track it well you can only fast track it so much you know there's going to be a certain risk there that's you know that 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 idea, once you start censoring or, or, or outlawing things like chiropractic or, or, or crystals or whatever, and pretty soon, what if it expands and includes the hydrochloroquine? Now, maybe it doesn't work, but what if it did work? Or maybe in conjunction with a Z-Pack, it, it works. You know, We just don't know. And uh, so I, I don't fault Trump for saying the things he said, even though Fauci kind of tempers him a little bit. That's good. That's also good. Let's you know, Trump say whatever he wants. Fine, go on Twitter, but let Fauci speak, and and he is. You know, there's another one of these conspiracy. You know, Trump is silencing Fauci, and and there I see Fauci on every other show on television every night. It's like, well, apparently he's not censoring very, very well. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, so one example, I, oh, I'm sorry, one example I saw was Jim Baker, the televangelist, oh, God. who's oh, made his God. comeback, and he was oh. trying to sell the silver oh. solution. That's what I was going to say. Do I yeah. have to send that back? I don't get to use it? <laughs> yeah, so there I, I would say, you know, that's a food and drug thing, although, you know, a lot of these uh, alternative medicine people try to slip under the law by call, by not calling it a drug or a food, that it's a supplement, you know, that kind of thing. I'm not sure what Baker was doing. I know he got uh, uh, censored. I don't know what he got, by, you know, scolded by Cuomo. And I think the state of New York came down pretty hard on him, I think, because he was selling something that that's pure quackery. That would be that. That's not speech. That's, you know, illegal doing something illegal and in, in that already recognized regulatory category. So we had a, a pastor here in Florida who got arrested, I think, last weekend. And um, I forget his name, but I looked him up on Wikipedia, and this guy has every crazy belief there is. But <laughs> yeah. but his his most recent thing was that coronavirus is is fake; it's for pansies, and he was going to hold services in his mega church anyway. And he had everybody shaking hands and hugging each other, um, and they they eventually arrested him. And I and I think he stopped holding service. Um, so I. Yeah. I, I, I I mean, that I seems know. like a violation of speech on the one hand, but on the other hand, um, I, I mean, also a public nuisance and a danger in a time like this. Yeah, and, and here I would have to say that's not a speech thing because, they're, you know, the freedom to for me to swing my arm ends at your nose, uh, they're, they're potentially harming other people because they can you know, c carry the contamination outward into the world. Therefore, it's not. Um, uh, you know, consenting adults doing whatever they want, no harm to anybody else. It's not in that category. So there, in the ca in case of emergencies like this, I think, I think the, the the touch of the state has to be a little firmer than than usual, um, despite our norms of you know free expression and free assembly and all that. 
You know, I, I mean, I'd be tempted to say, well, you know, let the crazies kill, kill each other with this disease, but that's not the problem. That's not the issue. You know, so that they, they then, from the church, carry the virus to the supermarket and, and, and they're not being careful with gloves and masks and so on. You know, that, that's the problem. The, just apply the harm principle there, I would say. So you could wind up with a, I, I think, given the extraordinary circumstances right now, you could wind up with government being a little, you know, essentially overstepping their bounds, arresting someone, letting them go. And then the charges eventually gets dropped once, um, you know, once the pandemic passes. Um, yeah, because I think there would be a, I think it would be tough to sort of continue prosecution of cases like that after after it sort of moved on. Yeah, but again, once you start down that road, well, we're just yeah. going to hold them for a while. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's what autocrats do. They yeah. jump on opportunities like that. Apparently, that's what uh, is happening in Hungary and and um, Turkey. Uh, perhaps, probably North Korea. We no one knows what's going on in North Korea. They just say we have no virus here at all. <laughs> the yeah. virus is afraid to come into North Korea. Right? Uh, China. You know, I don't trust what they say. There's maybe these are crazy conspiracy theories. Maybe not. You know, this business of like, why is it that, you know, like a million cell phone accounts were closed? Uh, you know, it's because it, they're dead. Well, I don't know. I mean, are the conspirators covering this up so dumb that they would just go and close down cell phone accounts and no one would notice? I don't know. You know, so they're, uh, again, part of this, um, you know, this, this principle I call the, you know, the mind, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, the mind abhors a vacuum of explanation. Where there's mystery, that's where the quackery comes in, the crazy conspiracy theories come in, and so on, when we don't have a, a, an understanding, you know, autism and vaccines. We don't know the cause of autism, therefore, vaccines or whatever. Um, that, that happens quite commonly in, you know, cancer quackery. The cancers we can cure, there's very little quackery. The cancers we can't cure, there's not so much quackery. Um, and and, and I, I think we're going to see that for a few more weeks until we get a, a, a handle on the coronavirus. I mean, we know what it is. They've sequenced this DNA and so on. But until, you know, we get the curve to flatten and then we have a, a vaccine for it, then, you know, I think that the crazies are going to come out of the woodwork. Yeah. That means I'm going to have to return my Alex Jones toothpaste, too. <laughs> <laughs> my God. Not only Jim Baker, but who's the other guy? Um, uh that was that was um, cursing the virus away, <laughs> Satan. Yeah, and he was he was blowing at. Yeah, it. he was like blowing. A, <laughs> oh yeah, he was uh, blowing the wind of God. Yeah, yeah, so. the, the wind of God. Yeah, he was these these 1980s televangelists. You know, that came of age then. There's I can't. They're still around. Right. You know, it's amazing. It's good business. Must be. I guess so, but yeah. again, we have to we have to tolerate the crazies like that. Uh, you know, for for they are our devils, which applies quite yeah. interestingly there. You know, for our own safety's sake. Wow, great talk again. Uh, uh, we look forward to the book, um, "Giving the Devil His Due," and it's reflections of a scientific humanist. Is that you? Humanist. Yeah, that's me. Well, that's my Canadian accent, you know? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. I like that. Humanist. Um, eh? That's really funny. So, anyway, thank you very much, and uh, we'll have the book posted on our website. And, of course, you have a a website. Do you want to give that out? Oh, yeah. Skeptic.com is the magazine website, and MichaelShermer.com is my personal website. And, of course, you go to Amazon and get, get... the book there or any of my other books and, and so forth. So thanks, thanks guys for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, Love the show. Thank you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, All shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.